As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I was definitely interested in reading that author's story, but I just couldn't like the wife. And I thought, how could she? Well, you know, no spoilers. <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 148. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. First, I have some news. Today only, that's Tuesday, August 28th, my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, is on sale for half price at Books A Million. My beautiful hardcover essay collection about the delights and dilemmas of the reading life is only $15 at full price, which makes 50% off a jaw-dropping deal. Visit booksamillion.com, look for I'd Rather Be Reading by Ann Bogle, and order your copies now. I'd suggest you order two copies because it makes a wonderful gift at a great price, and then you can get the terrific pre-order bonuses we're sending to readers who order two or more, including signed book plates and What Should I Read Next stickers. Submit your form at idratherbereading.com. To always make sure you get timely book news in your inbox, make sure you're signed up for our newsletter at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Readers, we've talked more than once on What Should I Read Next about how the power of reading aloud forges family bonds. And today's guest, Laura Summerhill, puts that thought into action in a brilliant and life-affirming way. But she's also been out of the pleasure of the reading game for a long time while working on her PhD. And today, I'm attempting to reconnect her with what everyone's been talking about in the book world while she's been gone. You'll hear that Laura is in Houston, and since Laura and I talked, I've made plans to visit Blue Willow Bookshop on Book Tour. I can't wait to visit, and I would love to see you there on September 26th. While I'm in Texas, I'm also visiting Austin's Book People on September 24th and Fort Worth's Monkey and Dog Books on September 25th. My book tour actually starts this weekend. I'll be at The Novel Neighbor in St. Louis on Saturday, September 1st, and I'll be at the home of Page One Books in Evanston, Illinois on September 2nd. Both events are ticketed, as is the one in Franklin, Indiana, near Indianapolis, on Wednesday, September 5th, and my event with the Ideal Bookshelf in Davidson, North Carolina, on September 7th. Get all those details, including info on where to get your tickets as needed, on my events page at annbogle.com slash events. That's Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L dot com slash events. Right now, if you're ready for bookshelf tragedies, paradigm shifts, and stories that give you that much-needed crying session, let's get to it. Lara, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much. Oh, well, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Now, you're in Texas right now, I believe, but you're not originally from there, are you? No, not originally from here. We moved here last August and I moved uh, from New York City. I'd been in New York City about 23 years, all of my adult life, really. And then we relocated to Houston. That's a big move. No subway here. (laughs) I definitely miss the subway. Houston was in nationwide news last year because of the big hurricane. When did you all arrive? We arrived about three weeks prior to Hurricane Harvey, and we rented a house initially because we didn't know Houston, and I knew I wanted my older daughter to be in a particular school because she's a dual language learner, and uh, that school happened to be located close to where my husband was going to work, so we rented a house. It happened to be a block off of a bayou. And so when the hurricane hit, uh, we evacuated because I grew up in Florida and I I knew I didn't want my kids to have to go through what I thought was coming our way. The house took on about four feet of water. We lost everything, basically, except for things that I put up high, like my wool sweaters that I'll never wear in Houston. Oh, (laughs) I've got got all my winter, winter gear. My winter gear is totally fine. But we lost almost everything else. I lost all my books. My husband's books were on the top two shelves of a bookcase. Mine were on the bottom two shelves. And my girls lost most of their books. So that was really sad. But I had researched the neighborhood. I knew Houston was prone to flooding. I knew this house had taken on water in the past. And I'm a little bit of a worst case scenario person, I think, because I'm a social worker. So I did buy flood insurance and that was a really great move. The flood insurance policy had been in effect about six days, I think, before the storm hit. So we did fine. And I was in New York during 9-11, watched that happen with my very own eyes. And and after 9-11, the best of humanity emerged. And The same thing happened in Houston after Harvey. So it was almost like I felt ourselves very fortunate that we were in Houston during this time because it was very reassuring that humanity is still good. I mean, at one point I counted 30-something volunteers, strangers in the house we were renting. They were helping to basically gut the house and get our stuff out on the street for the garbage men to pick up. And I just was blown away by that. So it was a really cool time to be in Houston. I like to say we were baptized Houstonian by the hurricane. And so we're committed to be here for a good long while. And it's very reassuring when uh, folks mobilize after catastrophes, that's for sure. It sounds like it really did affect the way that you saw yourselves as residents of the city. Yeah, I mean, for sure I was shocked. Like, are you kidding me? We just moved all of this stuff. We hadn't even paid the Amex bill, you know, to pay the movers. So at first I was like, oh my gosh. But then I was like, you know what? I'd I'd been reading, like I read the Marie Kondo book and I'd been flirting with minimalism. And I was like, you know what? It's time to embrace minimalism. (laughs) If ever I'm going to do it, this is the time to do it. I have basically nothing left. So I can rebuild from here and really choose what I want to have in my home and in my book collection and things like that. Now, I don't want to put a rose-colored lens on the situation, but I did finish reading just recently My Southern Journey by Rick Bragg. I mean, have you read his work? Um, I've read a little bit of his work. I haven't read that one. Well, it's just a very little bit of his work that I'm thinking of now. And he's lived through more than one hurricane, but he talked about how in these small towns, especially with lots of different residents, very old, very young, 
in a hurricane. It doesn't matter what you believe or where you go to church or what your car looks like. Everybody just comes together to help the people who need it. He was very pragmatic in describing it. He wasn't like, oh, thank goodness for hurricanes because they brought our community together. But he did talk about how in the midst of something that you wouldn't wish on anyone, how it really did bring people together in a way that was ultimately good for the soul, even in the midst of so much destruction. And yet I'm imagining all the readers thinking, Laura, you lost all your books. <laughs> well, I had downsized my books pretty significantly before we moved. And I think at one point I counted my husband and I had given away like close to 300 books oh, wow. prior to our move. Like I said, I was kind of flirting with minimalism and I was trying to get my collection down to like, what are the books that really do mean the most to me? Like, I don't tend to read books more than once, but... Mm -hmm. I wanted the books that if I wanted to read something more than once, I could put my fingers on them. So I'm a little bitter in some ways. My husband has all his books. As I'm looking at our bookshelf in our new house, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I've got like five up there, and the rest are my husband's. But I'm happy, you know, to eventually replace them. And I'm a big library lover. So I'm like, you know what? It's totally fine. I just um, I love going to the library. I use the holds. So it's uh, it's kind of nice to not take on stuff and to be very conscientious about what stuff we do take on. Were there any particular books that either because the contents or because it was a gift or something at some point in the past, um, were there any particular ones that you were especially sad to lose? I lost my Bible, which I'd had, you know, since I was a young girl. And so there were a lot of, you know, things written in the Bible. I had a habit of tucking things in my Bible that I cared a lot about ephemera. My mom had passed away about, uh, been gone about three years. So I definitely had little notes and things that she had written me that I'd tucked into my Bible, just thinking like, oh, this would be a safe place to keep these things. And so they were lost. So I think I was most grieved to lose ephemera having to do with my mom and uh, memories, things like that. I don't know why, but several of my all-time favorites made it through the storm. I, like I said, I had them up a little bit higher. And the ones that made it, I'm really satisfied with like having. I'm sorry for the things you lost. Thank you. We still have people that we know, acquaintances here in Houston that are putting their lives together still and a, almost a year later. And we're lucky we had a safety net. Not everybody does. So um, I definitely count ourselves as very fortunate. And having experienced some losses in my life earlier, I knew this is way easier than having lost my mom to cancer, for example. That was brutal. And, you know, if I did that, then pff, this is nothing. Laura, you're involved in an organization that I was not familiar with, but would love to hear more about, especially when you talk about groups of people who have lost things and are striving to rebuild and do the best they can in a very hard situation. Would you tell me about your involvement in the Storybook Project? Yeah, I'm, I'm a volunteer for the Women's Storybook Project of Texas. Their mission is to connect children with their incarcerated mothers through uh, the joy and reading of literature. I had worked in a jail previously in my professional life, and I really, really enjoyed it. I was wrapping up my PhD as we were preparing to move to Texas, which I knew would afford me a lot more time to volunteer and kind of get involved in things that I wanted to be involved in but couldn't because I was tied down by this PhD. 
PhD program. And so I started Googling organizations in Texas related to uh, offender reentry or incarceration, things like that. And I just happened upon the Women's Storybook Project of Texas. And I explored their website. I watched a little documentary that they had online and found it to be very, very compelling. And I thought, this is perfect. This kind of merges several things that I care a lot about and that are exciting to me. And I would love to volunteer for this group. So actually, right before we moved, I reached out to them and said, I'm coming and I would love to get involved. And so I started the process of going through the the background check with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And that takes a little while. And uh, once I received approval from them, I could go through a little training on um, boundaries and appropriate behavior when you're volunteering in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice System. And then I started going out once a month with a group of women. We go to a state jail just outside of Houston, and we spend the day recording moms reading books to their children. So um, essentially, the books are donated, children's books of all types for all ages. And we spread the books out on tables in the jail, and uh, the women come in. And they think about the age of their child and interests of their child, and they select a book, and then they just take turns reading to us. So I'm simply the volunteer that sits holding a little thumb drive kind of thing that records the mom reading, and it is my great honor to listen to these mothers read. It is such a simple intervention that I just can't believe it doesn't exist everywhere. Once the recording is completed, uh, the book and the um, recording are packaged up and they're mailed to the child. So then the child can sit and listen to the recording, flip through the book, hear their mother's voice. And uh, I love how it promotes literacy and it promotes attachment in spite of separation. And I think it's just a really, really simple and exciting program. Yes, it sounds amazing. And I'm so glad to hear about your experience actually personally on the ground working in it. I did find out by Googling because I thought, why does this not exist everywhere? That there are other organizations that go by different names in different states. Like Washington State has Read to Me, Mommy, Daddy. California has one called the Father to Child Literacy Project. So if you think, I don't have this in my state, maybe, maybe you do and you can get involved like Laura. Has working with the project strengthened your belief in the power of reading? Has it changed the way that you see reading, especially reading to kids? I'd love to hear about that. My favorite time of the day is at the end of the day when I read aloud to my kids um, at bedtime, and we've never missed a night of that. I just think about these moms and the separation that they're experiencing from their children, and I just would uh, find that so hard to not be able to read to my kids. Reading has really been a refuge for my family, especially this year having, you know, experienced the hurricane and moving forward, that experience was really difficult for my oldest child in particular. She's nine. And I really feel like being able to sit down with her and get lost in a book at the end of the day has been a wonderful way of coping and has been very healing, you know, for her in a lot of ways to have that time, not only kind of lost in a book, but that time with me where we're sitting and we're bonding over this shared story and the intimacy of sitting and reading together. So when I think about these moms who are incarcerated and, you know, they're incarcerated for lots of different reasons. And the way that I kind of view the situation is, you know, um, having worked in a jail before, I've met a ton of nice people in jail. It's so heartbreaking when children experience separation from their parents and vice versa. So I think being able to sit and watch these moms read 
has been very moving. It's caused me to reflect on the privilege in my own life. It's caused me to think maybe a little bit more critically about the criminal justice system and programs that exist or don't exist to keep families engaged with one another. You know, the literature shows that when children are separated from their parents for various reasons, it's very traumatic. And this is a way, a small way, in which connection can be fostered in spite of what could be a lengthy separation. I think that it's been a really wonderful experience to be a part of, and it's been an honor for me to listen to these moms read. And the moms come to the moment with me with many different feelings. So I have some moms that sit down and they're just weeping. They can't even begin reading the book because the experience is so emotional for them. Of course, you know, I'm like, take your time. You know, this is, this is an emotional experience. You're, you have the opportunity to basically send a message to your child who you're not getting to see on a regular basis. And I've had moms start the recording by singing happy birthday, you know, because the child's birthday is coming up. I've had moms give their kids a little pep talk, you know, at the end of the recording. And the books that moms have chosen have just been a wonderful, you know, array of stories. Uh, Moms that have older kids. I had one mom sit down and read part of the first chapter of The Hobbit, which I just thought was the coolest. And then, of course, moms with younger kids are reading Pinkalicious and... um, (laughs) (laughs) And Pete the Cat, you know, things like that. There's moms out there that, oh, gosh, their reading is so engaging. And I'm like, wow, you should work for Audible (laughs) (laughs) Um, because their voices are so wonderful. And then I've got moms out there that are nervous, that aren't sure they're going to pronounce certain words right. And so we kind of preview the book before they do the recording to make sure they feel good about everything that they're going to be reading aloud. And um, I just consider it a great honor to sit and witness that. It's very moving. It is moving. And I have not had the privilege to visit in person, obviously, but I did get to watch the introductory video on the website you shared. Mm -hmm. And I made the mistake of watching it immediately after I put on mascara in the morning. (laughs) Nobody else should do that. Take that as a warning, but it's so good. It's just six minutes long. And I was really moved just by the video. Mm -hmm. And in that video, they actually make a delivery, like a personal delivery to someone's home. And we don't do that in quote unquote real life because uh, we just can't visit all the homes. But uh, the family does receive this wonderful package in the mail. And right now the recordings are um, burned onto CD. And I know the organization is trying to um, to move forward uh, and use MP3s. So it'll, it'll change a little bit. But I think that it's um, such a great program. And the founder, uh, Judith Dulnick, she, she consults with other communities and agencies. And um, so if somebody's interested in trying to get a program like this started in their town, she's a great person to reach out to. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for telling us what it's like to actually be part of the organization. Mm-hmm. Laura, you've hinted at your reading tastes and your PhD and how reading is evident in your life and with your kids. I would love to talk about your books. Well, sure. All right. Well, you know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. And we will talk about what you should read next. Okay, great. You mentioned that you had some catching up to do. Yes, for sure. So the books that I'll mention today that I loved and the one that I didn't like so much 
they're all a little older. <laughs> I spent 10 years in a, a PhD program at NYU, and I did get in a little reading for fun while I was uh, studying, but for the most part, I'm way behind on what's cool <laughs> and, <laughs> and what's good. So, Is that something you've missed in the last 10 years? Oh, it's for sure something I've missed. Like I, I definitely had moments um, while I was studying that I was just like, oh, God, I want to read that so bad, and I just don't have time, you know? Or I would sit down to read for fun, and I would feel so guilty. Like, I shouldn't be reading this. I'm supposed to be studying. And I'm not the best student, to be honest. (laughs) I am swayed easily by distraction, which is why it took me 10 years. But I really did like these books. It was hard to narrow it down to three. So it's a common problem. I'd love to hear about your favorites. One book that I really loved was Blindness by Jose Saramago. Ooh, Yes, that says a lot about your reading life already. I really love this book because, first of all, it was it was a challenging read. He doesn't use periods. He uses commas. And there are no quotation marks, so it's hard to figure out at first who's speaking. I was so drawn in by the story that these folks are inexplicably struck by blindness and how they began to try to cope as everyone is going blind, that I wasn't thrown off too badly by his style of writing, although it was a little challenging at first to get used to. Tell us a little more about it because the style and it's not exactly structure, but the way the book is written is very unique because it serves the purpose of the story. I like dystopian stories. I liked when there's kind of something happening that's unexplained that you have to figure out and or or you're hoping to figure out. And this, I think, is because I'm a social worker, but I'm drawn to stories about misfortune or when things go wrong. Just the way in which he kind of began to tell this story drew me in. There's this eye doctor and several of his patients, you know, are struck by this blindness and basically thrown together by chance. It's a random assortment of people. They have to go through this quarantine, essentially. They don't know each other. They're strangers, but they have to work together and they become very familial as they essentially kind of use their strengths to cope and to survive because things um, begin to get very scary. The social order of society begins to unravel and they've got to essentially kind of fight for their lives. I'm worst case scenario kind of person, although I like to prepare for the worst case scenarios. I like a story that paints that picture. And it's by a Portuguese author. I haven't read any more of his work. And mm-hmm. I know that he's uh, really amazing, won the Nobel Prize for literature. I know there's a sequel to this book. I haven't read it. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I know there's a, a movie that was made. It didn't do well. I remember it not doing well with critics, so I didn't bother to watch it. I'm interested also in the fact that this is someone who's not American. And I'm curious about stories from places um, that I don't know, kind of the post-apocalyptic scenario. I don't want, I guess it's kind of thrilling for me. I feel a little bit weird saying that maybe I shouldn't like (laughs) that kind of thing, but it's very interesting to me. I hear you. It feels strange to say like, yeah, I love reading about things going horribly wrong. (laughs) Right. But if you can't articulate that to yourself, you're not going to find books that you love. So I'm glad you're willing, or at least mostly willing to own it. Yeah. And there's a dog in this story. This dog in particular because it was called The Dog of Tears and kind of its role that it played in the story to me embodies just what a dog is. Oh, I like that. Laura, tell me about another book you love. I loved a graphic novel called Persepolis. 
again, kind of an older book. I don't read a lot of graphic novels. My daughter, my nine-year-old, is really into graphic novels. I have kind of read some of what she's reading, and we're reading um, a few together right now. But um, I love Persepolis because it's a memoir. It's an autobiography. I really, as I sat to list the books, these three books that I really liked, I had so many memoirs. <laughs> That's also kind of related to my profession as well as a clinical social worker. People's stories are very interesting to me. And there are so many stories that it's cliche, but, you know, truth is stranger than fiction in a lot of, a lot of ways. So um, even the best author can't write some of the stuff that you hear from folks in real life. And um, But Persepolis is a really interesting book. It's Marjane Statropi. It's essentially about her childhood, from childhood to young adulthood, during and after the Islamic Revolution in Iran. I really like this book because it shared her view of what it was like to go through this revolution. And uh, I remember like one page in particular talked about her. I can't remember. It was like a Michael Jackson pin, like a little, you know, button you'd put on your jean jacket or if it was a poster or something like that. But then, you know, as the story unfolds, she's sharing her perspective on what it's like to all of a sudden be required to wear a veil or um, go to a school that's segregated by gender when she's used to going to a co-ed school and then have like secular education abolished essentially. And the story is very moving because of course there's tragedy and trauma and her reaction to that trauma is of course grief, sadness, but then also rage and she becomes pretty rebellious and her family essentially relocates her to Austria to go to school to save her life. So there's a Persepolis too, which I immediately went to the library and checked out after I finished the first one because I, I just found her story so compelling. And I know this was made into a film too. I haven't had a chance to see it. I would, I'm really interested. I think it was mm-hmm. nominated you know, for an Academy Award, so I'm sure it's wonderful. But just a very moving story. And the fact that it was a graphic novel made it move very quickly and it was very easy to engage with and I really couldn't put the book down. So one of many autobiographies or memoirs that I love. Do you remember what prompted you to pick up this book that's not exactly in your typical genre? Since you read lots of memoirs, but not so many graphic novels. Yeah, when I picked it up, I don't think I even really knew it was a memoir. I think I just thought, oh yeah, I heard of this book. It seemed pretty popular when it came out. Here it is on the library shelf. I'm going to take this home. And it might have been the first graphic novel that I'd ever read. Laura, what's another book you love? Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. It's a nonfiction, kind of a half memoir, half exploration of the criminal justice system in the United States today. His story, doing the work that he does, is very interesting. He is African-American. He runs an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative. He shares his own experience as a black man in the United States and how he has encountered racism and has felt that his life was in danger. But then he also tells a story of a specific person who was placed on death row. And when you read the story of how this man was accused of a crime that he did not commit, 
it's like your head will explode. Brian Stevenson begins working with him, trying to um, work within really a corrupt criminal justice system to have an innocent man freed. Um, so I think it's a very interesting book that takes the temperature of the criminal justice system today. It's easily accessible for people who might not sit down and read the new Jim Crow. It's fast paced. And I feel like it's really eye opening. So for folks who are not doing social justice work or particularly white folks who don't get what's happening, you know, with race in our country today. Maybe they're confused by things like Ferguson, Black Lives Matter. This is a great place to start to begin to understand. When you think a justice system is supposed to work one way and then you discover like, oh, these are true examples. This is evidence that the system is broken and imperfect. It's very alarming so it's a book that I tell everybody to read. I tell all of my student, my social work students to read it. Gave extra credit when Brian Stevenson came <laughs> onto campus because I was like, you've got to go hear this guy speak. We're going to come back to Brian Stevenson's work. But in the meantime, can you tell me about a book that you are not so crazy about? I read uh, The Secret History by Donna Tartt probably about a decade after it was published. This story, I was very interested in it because there's a murder and there's like mystery, although they tell you who did it up front. I've heard that it was called kind of a murder mystery in reverse. She begins to kind of unpack basically why this murder happened. So that's what drew me in. I was like, oh, great. I love kind of a mystery where people are behaving badly and, you know, things things have gone wrong, things like that. But the more I got into the story, and I, I forced myself to finish it. I just got to the point where, uh, so the story is about these students at this kind of elite private college in the Northeast. And one of the students actually is kind of an underdog, comes from a, a more humble background and is trying to work his way into this cool clique at this um, elite college. But the more that I read about these students who go to this private college and their privilege and their bad behavior, <laughs> the less I cared about them. It was really hard for me to finish the book. As I reflect on that, like I read The Nest when I should have been doing my schoolwork because <laughs> I knew it was like, oh, this is like a hot book, you know, and everyone's reading it. And I had a hard time caring about those people, too. I made it through, but I just disliked all the people. So no rich people problems for you. Yeah, that's kind of boring to me. Noted. <laughs> what are you reading right now, Laura? A memoir called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. I really enjoyed it. She's a uh, African-American evangelical who has spent much of her life in white spaces, basically is telling her story about being a black person in white spaces and how difficult that can be. I think it's a really good book for, again, kind of an eye opener for folks who don't seem to understand kind of what's happening in the world today in terms of race in the United States. And I thought her writing was compelling and clear. And there's some really moving essays in the book for sure. I'm in the middle of Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran. Mm -hmm. It's nonfiction. I picked it up in the airport and uh, got some of it read on the subway while I was in New York for uh, two weeks this summer. But I haven't been able to finish it because now I'm back in Houston. <laughs> I don't have a subway to ride. But it's really interesting story about uh, Native Americans basically uh, striking a rich um, from the oil industry when the oil industry began in the United States and how they uh, were slowly – 
being murdered and then the birth of the FBI and how the FBI got started and uh, how the FBI came to start investigating these murders. Basically, the FBI has just entered the picture and I don't know what happens next because I'm kind of in the middle of the book. But it's very interesting. And again, it's like, you know, this population that has experienced historical oppression and they've made it, and uh, but people don't want them to make it. Um, as a social worker, that's interesting to me. I try to listen to those kind of stories and understand what a life very different from my own is like. Okay, as we think about what you should read next, we know that you want to catch up on the hot books, what people have been reading while you've been working on your PhD. Mm-hmm. That could be like a book title, uh-huh. except instead of <laughs> while you were sleeping. Okay. Is there anything else you want to be different in your reading life right now? I just have to carve out the time to do it. It's hard in the summer because my kids are home, but during the school year, I work from home. I teach online, so I can set my schedule and say, okay, for this hour, I'm just going to read for fun, and then I'll get my work done before the kids get home from school. So yeah, I just have to do it. Do you read more when you have good books to read, or is it really just a question of calendar logistics? I think I definitely read more when the books are compelling and I want to read them for sure. So I'll I'll make the time. But if I don't kind of know what to read, you know, life is happening. It gets put on the back burner. It happens to the best of us. Okay. I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. Yeah. Surely you've read An American Marriage. I did read that. I didn't like it that much. I've uh, heard other people talk about it on your show, and I know it's like one of the hot books. I think I'm cursed with if I don't like a character, I don't like the book. I probably just need to be a little more open-minded. I hear what you're saying, and yet I talk to so many readers who feel like they need a character they can root for if they're really going to be engaged in the story. And Mm -hmm. since we were just talking about how you actually read when there's a book you want to read, and it sounds like you're not going to want to read about an unlikable character, I'm just wondering, sometimes there are things true about ourselves, our reading lives that we might not like, but that doesn't change them. I think it's okay for that to be a truth about yourself and your reading life. Yeah. And of course, the main character, the husband, he fits who I want to root for. I just found his wife. to. <laughs> I didn't like his wife. People with money problems and not the not enough kind. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely interested in reading that author's story, but I just couldn't like the wife. And I thought, how could she? Well, you know, no spoilers. But. <laughs> okay. I'm thinking about Anthony Ray Hinton's memoir, The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life and Freedom on Death Row. So I like this for you because it's a memoir of a man who was on death row for a Uh really long time for trumped up charges of capital murder, basically because he was black and in Alabama at the same time. And Brian Stevenson got involved in his case and got him released after 20-something years on death row. And this is his memoir of what that experience was like. He had a marked change in his attitude towards his incarceration at the three-year mark. And even though he was still in for many, many years thereafter, he lived differently after that three-year mark, after he had a realization. And then much, much later, Brian Stevenson's organization got involved and did free him from the crime he was not guilty of. What I like about this for you is that this is a story 
of misfortune with an underlying thread of hope and a character mm-hmm. that you strongly want good things to happen to with all your being throughout. Even though you wish the book never had to be written in the first place, you get the right ending. And it's yeah. someone else's story in their own words. He does have a co-author, but it's his story. I love a book that's got lots of difficulty, but a thread of hope and a story where there's redemption of some kind. So that sounds great. And obviously he's ultimately freed, but there are little moments of redemption throughout the book. Like he talks about how on death row, you are isolated, you are alone, you see no one. But he talks about like the ways the prisoners would encourage each other by Mm -hmm. banging on the walls or passing candy to Mm -hmm. someone who's going through a difficult situation, something like that. Mm -hmm. So there are little moments that make you think like, oh, I'm thinking of what we were talking about, the hurricane. Like, this is terrible, but there are still moments of really unexpected hope, even in that situation. Yeah, I believe in, you know, the strength of the human spirit. No matter how difficult things can be, we can choose hope. So that sounds awesome. Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. But my brain moved on to the next book, and I have complicated thoughts about this one for you, Laura. Okay. Have you read What We Lose by Zinzi Clemens? No. I like this for you, but 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 I'm also a little scared about it for you. This is a hot book. You want to read what people are talking about? People are talking about this book. It's a debut novel. A lot of critics are saying, how? This is amazing. Because sometimes the debut is like that. It's just too good to be an author's first book. It just, it just seems like it's too good. And you're so impressed. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is her first book. And it just came out about a year ago in the summer of 2017 and got lots and lots of critics and independent bookseller buzz right out of the gate. And I like this for you because it reads like a memoir. A lot of people have said as they were reading it that they had to go back and check like, wait, wait, this is a novel, right? Uh Uh-huh. Because the author is writing about a character with a South African mother and an American father who grew up in Pennsylvania. And that is the author's story. She has a South African mother and an American father, and she grew up in Philadelphia. So she is drawing on much of her own life to write this experience, which is why it really has a ring of authenticity. Mm. And also, I'm thinking of how you liked blindness that was Uh written in such a way that the things he does with punctuation and with story structure mirror what is happening in the story. And that really happens in this one as well. So this is a coming of age novel of a young woman, mixed race, doesn't really feel like she belongs at home in either ethnic identification, that she doesn't really belong at home. She's not American exactly in her mind, but she's not South African in her mind either. So she's straddling these two different worlds and she's really struggling with it. So she already has these identity issues that she's grappling with. And then her mother dies and she is devastated by grief. And the story is set up in such a way that what you feel like you're watching is her writing her way through that experience. And the narrative isn't very straightforward. It kind of jumps all over the place in a series of vignettes. But I think since you could do blindness and call it a favorite, that that is not too much for you. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in stories of identity too, as people try to figure out who they are. You know, I'm raising kids who are, who have been born in other countries, but are being raised in America. And so that's part of what their journey is. And 
it's really helpful to me to listen to people who've had similar experiences to that. I'm glad to hear that. Something that gives me pause about this story, and it could either be perfect for you or it can make you think, I never want to read that in my life, is that in the story, the main character, Thandi, her mother dies of cancer. So in the novel, she's with her mother and then her mother dies and she's walking through the grief. And I don't know if that personal connection will make this the right book for you or a book that you feel like you don't need to read because you lived that. Many times books are very cathartic. So sometimes it's helpful to me to read a story that relates to my own. I feel like in my busy life of raising kids and kind of looking after now my dad who's aging and working, et cetera, et cetera, there's not a lot of room or time for grief sometimes. So sometimes I need a good book or a good movie to give me a good cry, you know, (laughs) to to help me move along in that journey. So I'm not afraid of a book like that. Good. I'm glad to hear that. But I wanted you to know going in what you were getting into. As I think about another book that you may enjoy, I'm thinking of a story that's so immersive in time and place. It's really fascinating. It's set in 1980s Nigeria. You want good things for these characters, but I don't know that you like them. Well, you know, like I said, I think I need to um, be a little bit more (laughs) open-minded. I'm willing to entertain entertain the uh, suggestion. One I'm thinking of because it takes you around the world, because it shows you a way of life that's unfamiliar to most people living in New York or Texas or Florida, the side of the Atlantic, because the author does such interesting things with story, because it goes in a direction that I just wasn't expecting from the beginning. And I know I'm not alone. I'm thinking of Stay With Me by Ayubami Adebayo. Do you know this one at all? I don't. It's a skinny little book for a full length novel. It's one you could read very quickly. It's a debut. It was in the works for many, many years. I think Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie has talked about it actually uh, because they're both Nigerian writers. Uh So this is about a young couple who fell in love in university years and they promised each other that even though polygamy was still very much a practice in 1980s Nigeria, it wasn't the norm, but it was commonplace. They promised each other that they were in love. This was a love match. That was not a practice they would engage in. And yet the story opens when the wife's mother-in-law shows up at her home where her husband is with her husband's second wife that she didn't know he'd married Mm. with her. And so this couple, not completely against their will because the husband went along with this somewhere, end up because she is unable to have children, or at least she hasn't had children to this point. They end up in this situation with a second wife who ends up eventually moving into their home. And obviously their relationship becomes extremely turbulent from this point forward. Mm -hmm. But I like this because it does and doesn't tell the story you expect it to be telling. Like, of course, it's about love and marriage and commitment and promises. But there's also a lot more going on than you first realize. There's a reason that they're unable to get pregnant. And it was a big shocker to a lot of readers. So that's kind of fun. They seek a way out of the situation that only compounds the problem. So if you're drawn to stories of misfortune, um, this one has tons of it. Okay. So much of the story unfolds in the wife's 
beauty shop. And many readers just find that a really fun setting to see the women of the community together talking openly about the issues that matter to them when the men who are very much the ones running the show in this moment in time and this uh-huh. place especially find really, really interesting. It's also set against the backdrop of a really turbulent political climate in um, 1985 in the next 20 years or so in Nigeria. So that was really interesting. They're listening to the radio to see like, oh, did the coup really happen? Like what does it mean for us? Are we in danger? It's a compact little book, but there's a lot going on. It's really well done. I don't know that you're going to have a character where you say, yes, I want to live that life because you won't. But I think the things that made you go, uh, secret history, nope. And an American marriage was a little too much. I think this one is a little closer to your comfort zone on the spectrum. Uh huh. But while being outside of regular reading experiences in what I hope is a good way. How does that sound? That sounds really interesting. I like to read a story that gives a snapshot of a time period, maybe socially and politically of another country. I feel like I learn something from that. I uh, remember binging Big Love. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's a culture that's so different from my experience. So um, yeah, that sounds really interesting to me. And the fact that you said it's like a, a more compact kind of book. Given my schedule this summer, maybe I can get it, fit it in. Okay. I was just talking about polygamy and then you mentioned big love and I forgot all about this, but Tiari Jones has a previous novel called Silver Sparrow. Have you read anything else by her? No, I haven't. Okay. This is more of an underdog story. So I wonder if you, if you liked her writing and you wanted to give her another try, if this mm-hmm. might be a little more to your specific taste. So- okay. The opening line is really a zinger. It's something like, my father is a bigamist. And it's written from the perspective of a daughter of a man Mm -hmm. who has taken two wives. And Uh she lives in the illegitimate family. She sees herself as the underdog, as the hidden daughter, the one who doesn't count as much, who's not as important. She knows her mother's not as important to her father. Mm -hmm. And it's also set in 1980s Atlanta in a middle-class neighborhood. And... It's about these two families, the one that's a secret and the one that is out in the light. And it's a really interesting story. It's also more slender than an American marriage. And if you did want to give her another try, if you like the writing, but not the story, that would be a great one to try. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I read um, The Sound of Gravel, the memoir recently. Yeah. This girl growing up in a polygamous family, and it sounds like it's got some common themes. Um, So yeah, I'd definitely be open to reading that. Okay. I'd be interested to hear what you think. Laura, of the books we talked about today, what do you think you'll read next? I think all of them sound super interesting to me and I'm excited. I think I will read Stay With Me Next. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. And thank you so much for talking books with me today. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Laura today. What do you think she should read next? And what book opened your mind to the experience of someone different from you? Let us know in the comment section at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 148, where you'll also find the full list of titles we talked about today. Next week, What Should I Read Next producer Brenna Frederick is joining me on the show for another Ask Anne Anything episode. She gathered questions via email and social media, and I didn't peek, so I have no clue what we'll be talking about, but I can assure you it will be tons of fun. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We'll see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. 
Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, don't forget to pick up I'd Rather Be Reading for 50% off at Books A Million. Today only, that's Tuesday, August 28th. And after you've pre-ordered, go to idratherbereading.com to submit your form for your terrific bonuses. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.